You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Now I want to invite you, as is our custom, to join me in Lamentations chapter 1, the, the first chapter of the book of Lamentations. And as we walk through a book of the Bible, I want to invite you to join us in that. And, and I will read the first 11 chapters, as I read last week, and give you a recap, a little bit of where we have been going, and, and a little bit about what the, Lament, the book of Lamentations is about, and, and why we're in it, and, and then walk through it together in the time that we have. And, and so, as you've, uh, I hope, over the last uh, week, gotten a chance to think about what this is. Um, I summarized it last week, and we'll come back to this. The, the book of Lamentations is a communal or community lament written to reflect upon, and I would say even memorialize, the greatest devastation that the nation of Israel had ever faced. So there's kind of two different things, two different events that, that we experience in the Old Testament that are in many ways like the they're kind of the lens through which we understand the Bible. Two key events. And the first one is the, the exodus. That is that God's people, having rebelled against him and were subjected to oppression in Egypt, God in his mercy, a promise-keeping God, delivered them and said, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a place to call your own. And so then, as they get their place over the next centuries, they they get a capital city and they, they get a united monarchy under a king after God's own heart, that is David. And, and, in, and in all of these blessings over the course of time, they turn against God. They rebel against him, do whatever they want, begin to destroy themselves and the people around them. And God, in his good and merciful and holy and righteous character, disciplines them turns them over to the things they really want, lets them go and pursue the idols and, and, and the rebellion that they really want, such that at this point, as we see in the major prophets, which is where Lamentations likely finds itself, likely at the end of Jeremiah, the second great event of the Old Testament is lamented here or spoken of, namely the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the palace. And so the beauty of all of God giving them a promise, a land, a place, a kingdom, to be people that are under his sovereign rule and reign for the blessing of the nations, they turn against it. And in 586, the temple, the palace, the whole city is destroyed. And we went through that this last week. You'll see that at the very end of the book of, of, of Second Chronicles as well as Second Kings and so I want to read to you the, the lament over the most devastating event that had happened up to this point in the life of these people. In verse 1, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who is, was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. 
Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering. All the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction. For the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. This is God's word, and my prayer for us is that it becomes more than just ancient words, ink on a piece of paper, but instead they become timeless. They become the very words of an eternal God for his people. I want to begin with a question. How long could you go without sleep? Right now, how long, how many all-nighters could you pull in a row? How long, beginning right now, could you go without sleep? Think about it for just a minute. How far could you make it? What would you need to stay awake? Could you pull one all-nighter? Maybe two in a row? How long could you make it? And and even then, how, how, how long could you make it without sleep before the effects of sleeplessness became visible to the people around you? I want to ask you a follow-up question. Is your need for sleep and the limits for how long you can go without it a flaw or is it a feature? Is, 
Is it something that's wrong with you and with me? Or is it a part of God's good design? Is it a part of what it means to be human? You see, last week I opened with a question in order to see if you might recall the first thing you did when you came into this earth. That is that the most natural, the, in fact, the, more, the most primary, that is the first experience of being human, is crying out. Crying out. In fact, that was what the doctor was looking for, to make sure that you were okay. And that's not a flaw. That's a part of God's design. That is what it's like to live in a broken, fallen world. It is a part, a feature of humanity. And so, it's not something that, in that sense, we, we ought to avoid, but we ought to understand and, and realize it's a part of God's good creation. And so, in the same way, so also, sleep, rest. It's not a flaw. It's what God intended for us. After all, all of these things in our human experience point to something about who God is. All his creation has his fingerprints on it. They're, they're the marks of the artist. And for example, sleep is, is something that our God ultimately wants to give us, namely rest. Not in a comfortable mattress, but rest in him, in his presence and in his provision. And so it's not a flaw, it's a feature. And if you try to avoid it, if you try to work against it, at a certain point, you your needful sleep, your need for sleep will override any of your other decisions. You can put it off for a time. You and I could pull an all-nighter in an emergency. We, we could do it if we had to. But at a certain point, if we tried to put off sleep, our body would take over. The way that God has designed us would start to take over. You might find yourself even just falling asleep, standing up in an airport terminal. Been there. But at a certain point, you can try not to sleep and your body will take over. The way that God designed you will take over. So also with grief. Grief like rest, like food, like breathing, like drinking water. You can put it off for a time. You can try to convince yourself that it's not a part of of life, that it's not a part of the human experience. You can put it off temporarily, but at a certain point, God's design will take over. And in the same way that your body will decide for you when it's time to no longer put off any sleep, so also the way that God has made you, his design will take over. And you can ignore sin and suffering in the world and the grief and despair and hopelessness that it causes but you can only ignore it temporarily. At a certain point, it becomes something that has to be experienced and expressed. Some of you know this. You've put off grief. Maybe even now you're, you're either afraid that it will overtake you and you won't be able to get out of it or, or you're just uncomfortable with it, but you've experienced this. Like if you lose a loved one, there's a sense in which you kind of have to hold it together. I, I, can't, I can't just break down and weep right now. I've, I've got to make plans for the funeral. I've got to make adjustments for we're still in crisis or in tragedy, but, but make no mistake about it. At a certain point, the way that God has designed you will take over. And the right and good grief over sin and its effects in the world will take over. 
You can put off grief for a time, but some of you know this. Grief comes in waves. It's a part of life. It's a part of living in a broken, fallen world marred by sin. And the Bible, and what I want to compel you to see, is not shy about this. It's not shy about it. It welcomes all the hard questions that come from that kind of experience. In fact, the title of this book isn't Lamentations. Like many of the Old Testament books, the the first word that is in the beginning of any of these Old Testament books served as its title. And so the first word here is what? How? Right? Like, how could this be? I want to encourage you, if you're in this, like, you've come to connect to us through this live stream, and you're in this conversation with us, and maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and you wouldn't call yourself a believer in Jesus. I'm, I'm so grateful we're connected in this way, because I bet you come with a lot of really good skepticism. Like, how could you believe this? How could this be? And, and I want you to see the, the Bible does not dismiss it. In fact, the Bible gives us language. It invites our skepticism. How could this have happened? How could these things have come to pass? The Bible's not shy about it. In fact, it's more honest about the, the way of things than you and I probably are. And so to stop and wonder how this has happened, why it's happened, and what will come of this is not something that we dismiss or avoid. You can try, but that experience of grief will catch up. I say that especially because when, when I first pre- began preparing for this, I shared with you last week in 2017 to walk through this book of the Bible. I'm, I'm still not sure if I'm ready for it, but I remember when we, we bought all of, the, uh, um, all of the, 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 the ESV journal Bibles. I hope you have one. If you don't have it, we'd love to put it in your hands. It's a great tool for, for studying the Bible and contemplating. And, and so uh, when we got those at the beginning of this year, there was kind of a sense in which like, I, mean, I hope this, is, this will fit, and, and I, I could be wrong, but this is a season for grief. This is a season that everyone has experienced the loss of something. We just recently in, in the United States broke 200,000 deaths related to the COVID-19. And even if you're a conspiracy theorist and you're like, well, well it really isn't that many, I'd say, fine. So how many thousand deaths are, are, are okay not to grieve? But maybe it's not the loss of life or a loved one, but maybe it's the the loss of a job, the loss of financial security, the loss of investment. At the very least, you and I have lost what we consider to be our way of life. Notice the Bible is not shy about that. It's not surprised when we experience the loss of things that we value. There's much to mourn. There was research that was released even this last week that back in March, about 32% of people reported that their mental health had been negatively impacted by COVID-19. About 32%. And an updated poll this last week said that now that number is up to 53% of American adults. They report that their mental health, just listen to it, their mental health has been negatively affected by COVID-19. I'd have to be, they didn't call me for this poll, but I'd have to be in that 53%. Stress and anxiety over the current milieu of circumstances, not just, mind you, COVID-19, but 
a face-to-face encounter with unreconciled racial disharmony. This, this virus is impacting different ages differently. It's, it's, it's revealing a, a, a divide between even generations. It's, a, it's providing a divide between economic statuses. There's much to mourn. There's, there's, some, there, there's, there's not anyone's experience right now that isn't marked by something like, that's broken, that didn't work. And our anxiety has impacted our ability to sleep, eat, occurrences of abuse, substance abuse. These things are, <laughs> these things are not getting better. And so here's what I want to invite you. Like, the Bible is not surprised by that. It's not shy about it either. It's right in the, in the midst of losing things that are valuable to stop and say, how has this happened? And I know many of you will, will resonate even more deeply with the very first words. How lonely. We saw last week, it's, it's right and good to profess our loneliness. And this separation, you know, qu- qu- the idea of quarantine, that, that's not a sustainable way of life. And it's negatively impacting us. And I know for many of you, you, you're just isolated and lonely. And I want to, like, friend, realize that God's word is hundreds, if not even thousands of years ago, was, was already being inspired such that in these moments you would have language and words and know that the Lord is not surprised by this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. We saw last week that Uh, These people were exiled. All of the skilled people were kicked out, and all that was left were the poor and destitute. And so chapter 1 is the first poem of these five chapters or five poems compiled in the book of Lamentations. Now, many people think that Jeremiah wrote all of them or some of them, but it's at least under the influence of Jeremiah the prophet's writing. And and we know, and we'll, we'll see this through the next few weeks, the connections of language and themes that are in Jeremiah's prophetic word, the major prophet, the book of Jeremiah, written to these people as a, as a warning for all of these things to happen. And so you'll see language that overlaps, and we'll see some of that today. But the way that these first four poems are arranged are through acrostic. They are an acrostic. They are a, a literally an A to Z of suffering. An A to Z of suffering. And now I know if some of you Hebrew scholars, you'll, you'll correct me on that, but because after all A or Z are, are not letters in the Hebrew alphabet, but if you want to, you can turn to Psalm 119. It's not an acrostic, but Psalm 119, for example, is the A to Z of thankfulness for God's Word. And the sections of Psalm 119 begin with Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and end with Tav, the last. So 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And, and in this sense, it's like the A to Z. It's the, it's the A to Z of suffering and sorrow. Now, what that also means is that as the, as the poets were writing these lyrics for these chapters, and, and in the end you see that the structure breaks down continually, like, or completely by the fifth poem, there's a lot of scattered thoughts if you were to start a poem and just start with the letters as opposed to like organizing your thoughts, then it'd be hard to match them. And so the theme and theology of this book is going to be kind of difficult to discern at times as we're walking through it for the next few weeks. However, I would again point, that is just God's good, that is like God's good mercy on us for lament. When you're sad, 
when you experience loss and despair, would you describe your thoughts as orderly? Would you describe your thoughts as coherent? And so as we walk through this, you will see some some different themes kind of packed in, but it's like the book of Proverbs, and there are sections of it where it's just, it's just simply a litany. It's a list. There's this, and there was this, and there was this, and, and sometimes they seem disconnected, but friend, that, that's how the Bible is helpful and honest about how disconnected our thoughts and feelings are in despair and in loss. And so these first 11 verses are the lament over Zion, the, the lament over this city, Jerusalem. And so this poet starts to speak about the destruction. And the illusion, the, the word picture this poet uses, is the picture of a woman. Now, I want to point out, as we walk through this book, what I think will be obstacles for experiencing biblical lament, out of which we cry out to God, are honest with our frustration and confusion, and trust Him with the result. This book conveys pain, Agony, distressed as a result of divine punishment in response to sin. Did you hear that part? These people had sinned. It was their sin, their multitude in verse 5 of transgressions that had brought this suffering on. Suffering is complicated. It's difficult. There is suffering that is caused by, as we see in Lamentations, our own sin. But the human experience is complex. Sometimes there's suffering that's also caused by the sin of others. And we're meant to see in both of those circumstances, sin is literally here lamentable. It is a cause for lament. The problem I I would pose that it'll be an obstacle for us to experience this biblical lament and and therefore experiencing the the deeper rooted kind of faith that, that I think the Bible wants us to have is this, that we would often rather ignore or avoid the presence of sin and the agony caused by it than to worship in it. We would rather avoid it, not talk about it, dismiss it, get past it, get over it, than to experience God's presence and worship God in the midst of it. Lamentations describes one of Israel's greatest failures. It's, it's like the dirty laundry, the dirtiest laundry. Literally, do you hear the, the picture of, of the, the filth and the, the dirtiness, the uncleanness? And verse 9 was actually in this, this, this figure of a woman in her skirts. This is the dirty laundry, the intimate dirty laundry of Israel put on display, aired for all to see. We don't like to talk about our greatest failures. We don't like to think on them. And the story is about their greatest failure and the discipline they incurred by rebelling, against, by rebelling against God. This isn't a story about God's great saving act in history. And that's why it's often ignored. And so as a result, we miss out on the wisdom that is in this A to Z thorough listing of the experience of despair for sin and suffering in the world. Ecclesiastes 7 says it this way. We saw this as some years ago when we walked through this. It is, it is better, in verse 2 it says, to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, that is death, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face of the heart is made glad. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And so in our avoidance to discuss or think about or ponder the presence of sin and the agony that it caused, we are, Ecclesiastes tells us, wisdom literature here, that we are fools. We are We are foolish in heart when we avoid the reality of suffering and sin around us. And yet it is wisdom that we gain when we are honest about things that are broken and that don't turn out like we plan. In an information age, we can be tricked into thinking that information is wisdom. And right now, we're being bombarded by information about a multitude of difficult topics that span the globe. And and I just want to be careful here. If we don't lament the brokenness that that exists in those things, then then we'll, we'll, we'll misconceive of the situation. We'll think that our information, being informed about things that are happening on the other side of the globe, equals wisdom. That's not true. Wisdom comes from the house of mourning, grieving, lament the way things really are. Lamentation will deepen you. It will deepen you. It will deepen your worship, your experience of God's presence, and it will deepen your community with others. After all, I can have fun with anyone. But one of the things that you see here is this is a corporate lament. It it invites us to stop and think about how we share sorrow. It's easy to share fun with people. But I've noticed I can only hurt alongside alongside people that are closest to me. In fact, hurting with them and alongside them is what has made them close. So when, when this reflection of loneliness and sorrow, like a widow she has become, right? Lonely in, in, a, in a time and place where a widow wouldn't have had the ability to support herself financially or care for herself. Like I wanna, in, a, in a time where we're all grieving the loss of something right now, To ignore it is to miss what God might be forging in deep community with one another and deep communion with him. After all, relationships have no depth if they don't share something to lament with one another. We won't pray rightly without this kind of language. Because in suffering, we'll simply resort to what our our current culture, it's called the the cancel culture, right? Or the AWOL culture is like if something goes wrong, people just disappear. There's a word for it. It's called ghosting someone. It's like you just, like there is no end, you just disappear. As soon as difficulty happens, you just avoid. The problem is that cancel culture, that distancing from trouble, instead of sharing in lament and sorrow over, over things that are broken, That proneness of us to ghost people, to distance people, is actually a reflection of our theology. We feel abandoned by God. We feel there's no meaning, and so we distance ourselves from others. My biggest problem isn't when a person ghosts me. My biggest problem is that when they do that, they've shown they're probably ghosting God. And rather than siding with the heart of God over the sorrow that's caused by sin and siding with one another over things that we share that suffer, that that cause suffering. We just go AWOL. And as soon as we're unhappy, we don't know what to do. 
And so we just run. And lamentations could, I believe, for us, bring you and I back into the real world that's depicted by Scripture. One author says it this way, The Western church has gotten addicted to success and wealth. In fact, is even through it influencing the two-thirds world Christians to do the very same. You'll hear me talk about this, how we've exported the prosperity gospel to third world countries. That People who value ease and monetary success will tend to ignore and avoid the Bible's statements on suffering and grief. They will avoid confessing sin, since to do so would be to admit that they do not deserve to be happy and satisfied. And this lack of reality pervades this sort of Christianity, and its adherents are not likely to become very interested in books like Lamentations. Why read about defeat when we can bask in victory? So pay attention to the feelings that this book raises in you. They're probably a window into the way you feel about God, his character, and his word. In Lamentations, sin has consequences. We read them. Sin has consequences. In Lamentations, we find out that God actually cares, though, about sin, suffering, and depravity. And he does something about them. And the discipline that these people incur, as we see reflected in the first poem, is a cause for deep sorrow. But I want you to see here that without realizing, did you catch that in in verse 5, that that the Lord has brought affliction because these people deserve it in their rebellion, without reflecting on that, we can't actually bask in or enjoy God's forgiveness. In fact, we can only sing that God's grace is amazing when we admit that we deserve his righteous holy judgment. It's only in the backdrop of lament over our sin, right? We've we're weeping bitterly in verse 2. We're, we're exiles. We've, we've, actually get, we've been alienated from our neighbor because of our sin in one way, shape, or another. And then what we used to find to be a free pathway, these gates and roads, they've been destroyed. They're desolate, and now we suffer bitterly. Why? Because of our sin. And until you realize that you play some small part either actively or complicitly in the brokenness that exists in the world, then you will never be able to understand how amazing God's grace is. After all, if all the sinners and all the the broken bad people are out there, then God's grace isn't that amazing. In fact, it's kind of disappointing. Like, okay, God, let's fix all this. But when you begin to reflect on the way that sin is embedded into our nature that we rebel against God and want to be our own God and make other things into God's regularly, that we realize, wow, the fact that God would love and care for me, even though I've rejected him and pushed him away, is amazing. So let's make a few quick reflections that are in here. But, But I want you to also meet the Lord in this. I don't want to overly dictate the way we ought to read this, but I want this poetic lyric to begin to stir your own imagination for how you might be able to lament sin, reflect on its effects, and then experience a deeper communion with the Father through His grace and a community with one another. So it likens this Israel or or Jerusalem here, Judah specifically, like a widow. And so you start by thinking like, well, okay, so this 
you know, this, this poor woman is in a, in a is, she's destitute. She's in a difficult situation. And it says she weeps bitterly in, in verse 2, but, but there's something unique going on. She, she was a widow and a princess and a slave, but then it says something interesting. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her, right on the heels of the beginning of verse 2, that all her lovers, that she has, out of all of her lovers, she has none to comfort her. And you already see the complexity of sin, don't you? In some sense, she's, she's posed as like a, man, this is unfortunate. She's destitute. She's a widow. Like, unless she killed her husband in this sense, she's a, a product of situations and circumstances outside of her control. And yet there's something more complicated in that. Not only has she kind of been sinned against, she also has sinned against. It's like, well, this poor woman, I'm, it's sad for her. She doesn't have her husband. But then if you get to verse 2, you realize, wait, she was unfaithful to her husband to begin with. She was already running around on him. I want you to see this idea of what I'll call spiritual promiscuity. The, the Bible calls a spiritual adultery. The, the language of, of us turning against God to be unfaithful is picked up in not only in this verse, but it's also picked up in Jeremiah chapter 30. Verse 14, this is Jeremiah's warning to Judah before all the bad things happen. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. In verse 22, and if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. You see, in verse 27, your abominations, specifically your adulteries and neighings, your lewd whorings, thanks Jeremiah, don't, don't get graphic or anything, cause us to say, woe to you, Jerusalem. How long will it be before you're made clean? So this idea that rebelling against God is, is equated with Cheating and unfaithfulness. It's leaving God's faithfulness to look to other things. And, and you see the complicated nature of sin, don't you? On one hand, the sin of others is corporately experienced by this widow. But on the other hand, she's also brought this on herself. This is important because it can be easy to oversimplify the nature and effects of sin in such a way that isn't helpful or redemptive. Because each one of us is a complex human made in the image of God who is, at the same time, feeling the effects of others' sin, right? Namely, remember we saw last, our lineage, part of understanding is understanding the, the story of, of sin and its presence in our history, all the way back to our father and mother, Adam and Eve. And so to understand that, in, a, in some sense, we, we're a part of a, a great lineage of sin. We are suffering the consequences of other people's sin. And at the same time, we are sinners who have rebelled against God. And that's, that, that will confound. That will mess up most people's worldview who simply want to either blame or shame. Right? You're either a victim or you're a perpetrator. And here's the thing. What we find here is sin destroys every aspect of humanity to the point that even if... It, Here's, here's, here's the complicated nature of, and I would say hopefully the, the invitation for God's redemption covers both. 
that you may have very well been the victim of unspeakable sin. And I, I want to share with you, like, the Lord hears you, the Lord knows. But you might also have been a perpetrator of unspeakable sin. And I want you to hear, the Lord knows. The Lord is not absent. And here's the thing that will boggle the mind and deepen your joy in the gospel. You and I are both. You and I are both. We both carry the scars of generational or even recent sin in our own hearts. And we also bear the scars of sin that we've committed ourselves. And I would just warn you, any, any effort to oversimplify will miss out on the deep grace that God means to show us. If you've just found someone to blame, you haven't actually found the problem. If you just have taken responsibility and experienced shame over something, you haven't found the problem or fixed it either. Look at how she's a widow, and yet she also like, is unfortunately a victim and a perpetrator. And verse 3, there's affliction and hard servitude as a result. Because of this, she now dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her. Biblical lament also involves admitting that the things we've looked to for comfort and satisfaction didn't work. They broke. And so the things that she was looking to for comfort, the way that she was unfaithfully rebelling against God, didn't satisfy her. And in her moment of need, they left her as well. And friend, that's exactly what the prophet Jeremiah and, the, and that's what the rest of the Old Testament describes as sin and, and idolatry. Whenever we look to something else for satisfaction, it always deceives us. A French poet and a World War I veteran wrote it this way, in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. If we're going to have a lasting hope, right? did you hear the nature of the, she, she used to go to them as lovers, but now they won't comfort her. The things she had trusted in have now become treacherous against her. They've turned on her. She, she thought they were going to give her satisfaction, and it turns out they were the source of her greatest misery. And friend, that's exactly what sin is like, isn't it? That thing that you knew would give you what you wanted, makes you its slave. And when you look to it for more, it holds itself out. They're in exile because they had been deceived by thinking they could be satisfied in something other than God and his provision. All her gates are desolate. Verse 5, now the things that she had thought as enemies, or were enemies, have now taken over, and they prosper, and the, the Lord has brought it in because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away. We saw that in 2 Kings. There's a scattering. And as a result, then, builds up this, this sense of sorrow for what is lost. Look at verse 7. Jerusalem remembers. If I could offer a helpful 
reflection on grief and sorrow, I'll give you kind of two ways to look at it. The first is this. Grief is the soul's way of saying, this mattered. Grief is the right response when something mattered to you and it's lost. And grief is simply weighing out, assessing the value of a thing, and recognize the effects of having lost it. Make no mistake about it. You, you, can, you can try not to experience this, but, but in avoidance, man, even when, you, when you're even actually pursuing this actively, it still comes upon you in waves. That's why I know many of you, and myself included, if you've lost someone you loved, there's the sorrow and grief that overtakes you months and years after because of a smell that you encounter, a thing you encounter, and it reminds you of that person and what they meant to you, and, and then just letting the weight of their loss sit on you. That's grief. But be encouraged. It's how God made us to cry out, that mattered. In fact, to avoid grief, to avoid sadness in those moments, is a way to rebel against that good thing God has created. It's to say, well, it wasn't a big deal. But in your heart, you know that's not true. It is good and right to assess the value of a thing and, and, and confess and lament that it's gone. That dreams or that hopes or a person, something you had hoped in or hoped for, it's gone. It's right. The, the Bible isn't shy, you see in verse 7, about saying, Man, this stinks. <laughs> I don't know what you had planned for the last six months, this, this is nothing like I had planned. Man, I wish we were all here together. I wish this was all gone. This is frustrating. This is driving me nuts. And look, we're meant to say, that's right. That's right. This is terrible. And we're meant to hearken back. Now, not just to January when we thought all things were better. Look what it, we get this picture to hearken all the way back to the garden. We don't just lament because the last six months have been terrible. We lament because, because of sin, we were separated from God's presence in the garden. And it affects everything. Notice in verse 9, it becomes, it gets really, 8 and 9 become very graphic. Like the, the effects of this, this filth permeates everything. But I want you to see, as we see the effects of sin and confess them, we are expressing discontentment with sin. Something you'll hear me say for the next couple of weeks. My prayer is that you become deeply discontent with sin and deeply content in God's grace for us in Christ. The problem arises when we become discontent with God's grace in Christ, and we become pretty content with sin. We become pretty content with stuff that's broken. In fact, we begin to benefit from it. One of my biggest uh, warnings in, a, in, a, in an election cycle like this is often people who don't have a, a biblical or Christian worldview take sin and suffering and they use it. They use it because they can sell you on it. They can make you afraid of it and, and make you kind of run from it. And, 
And, and rather than seeing its weight and understanding its mass and its gravity, they, they can kind of motivate you with making you afraid of it. Like, oh, this, this is why you should be afraid of it. But, but notice, in a way that can make, we're in a sense kind of content with sin and content with us being able to fix it. Because fundamentally, when, when we seize things that way, we, the, the way this happens is the filth permeates us, right? And so the cheap distraction is that we're not the problem, but, but even though the problem is widespread, there's a human solution. And the book of Lamentations says it's not that there's a problem in the world that has a human solution. The problem, is the, the problem in the world is humans, our own filth and sinfulness. And so I'm, I'm beware in, in election cycles when people kind of try to spin a solution that's a human solution to an eternal problem. So by all means, vote for the policies and procedures and people that offer the best and wisest solution. But beware as a Christian, we're going to be aliens in this place because it, if you think there's a human solution, you haven't felt the depths of the human problem. Jerusalem sinned grievously and there's filth and she was despised. She was exposed and she was naked. Her uncleanness was intimate and therefore her fall was terrible and without comfort. O Lord, in verse 9, behold. That is like, God, look. Verse 11, all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade what's valuable, treasure, just to get by. They're in survival mode. So where does that leave us? Sin is our problem. It's complex. It makes both, it makes both perpetrators and victims out of all of us. Sin is, is, and its effects are visible everywhere. It permeates every aspect of our lives. And to see it for what it is and rightly desire a change, to see the world as it is and to see it through God's eyes and lament it is actually to side with God. If not, we'll be duped into false solutions will be duped into, right, running off to, in this, sense, in this sense, spiritual lovers that will turn on us the minute they get the chance. But I want to encourage you, as you lament sin and its consequences, its pervasive nature, you're saying to the devil, to the world, and to the flesh, I disagree with you. I am not okay with this. When we lament injustice and brokenness and sin, we're saying to the world and to the devil, I'm not okay, I'm not comfortable with this. Lament is a holy protest, protest against evil and its effects. And my hope is that you begin to see the sin in your own heart and you hate it just a little more. And you long for deliverance a little more. These people would have seen as they're groaning the effects of sin that even corrupted their own heart how hopeless and helpless they really were. So there's a comfort and good news. The first is the comfort. We lament the presence of sin and its effects because we know that God hears and knows us. Over and over and over again, I don't want you to forget this. The fact that this is in the Bible is its own testimony. The fact that this is inspired by Scripture, right? I mean, just think about that. I, I don't want people to complain against me. And God in his mercy, wanting to comfort his people, inspired them to complain and ask questions against him. 
And so your sorrow is merited. It's not dismissed. Don't, don't, you know what it feels like to have your sorrows dismissed or someone tell you that it's not a big deal. Notice that's not what the Holy Spirit does in Scripture here. The fact that this is here shows that God listens, God cares, and God longs to hear from his people. In many ways, we come to God and say, God, right, like, look, Lord, in verse 11, this is awful. This sin in, in this world is terrible, and it's as, if, it's as if the presence of lamentations is God saying, that's what I've been trying to tell you. This sin is awful. Run from it. Turn from it. Come to me. Trust me. The second thing we see, though, is that you will grieve over sin and its effects now and experience God's grace forever, or you'll be content with sin and its effects and experience God's justice forever. God takes sin seriously, incredibly seriously. And I'll end with this in Jeremiah 31. The prophet, before this comes to pass, says and lays out what this passage leaves us to long for. Right? You're like, well, well if sin is out there and sin is in here, how, what, what must I do? How can we be fixed? Like, if my heart is the source of this sorrow, if I'm actually contributing to the problems that are in the world, then what can I do? And Jeremiah tells them in chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, first grand, grand event. That covenant that they broke, even though, listen to this in verse 32, I was their husband. Do you hear, the, do you hear the, the language as it overlaps? He says, look, you're like a cheating wife and, and you've turned against your husband. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after they're desolate, after they've rebelled, after they've unfaithfully run to other things. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin in all its effects. No more. Friend, God has seen the brokenness of sin and come to bear it for us. The curse of sin, the New Testament tells us, Jesus, even though he was without sin, became that curse so that you and I would be the righteousness of God. He became the filth and took it on himself so that we would experience cleanliness. Did you hear that language? A freedom, a forgiveness being made right, our sins and wrongs being erased, taken away, remembered no more. Friend, God has come to be with us in Christ and bear the brunt of this sin for us so that the thing that's most broken in your life and mine, namely our own very hearts, do you hear what, what God's going to do? He's going to come and he's going to give us new hearts. And all the places that were marred by sin and its effects and the discipline that was incurred by it will someday be marked by newness, fruitfulness, 
renewal, rejuvenation. And all the places that were corrupted and broken in your heart and mine will be made new. Hear the good news of the New Testament. When we cry out in verse 11, Lord, look at me. Behold, I'm in affliction. Christ has come to give us what the original hearers and readers of Lamentations could only dream of. That he would know us, be with us, comfort us, and make us new. But make no mistake about it, when we become comfortable with sin and its effects in this world, then we live with the the consequences of sin and its effects forever. Your current sorrow over sin is a gift. It's an invitation. It hurts. It's awful. But the best way I've heard it said is this, that God will allow us to experience hell on earth so that we won't experience hell after this life. The sorrow that you and I experience as sin is temporary, and it's a gift so that we will long for and only be satisfied in the life that is to come, the life purchased by the perfect life, death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus. So friend, do you have something to grieve? Is your heart broken? Are are you disappointed Are you frustrated? Then join with me and hear the good news. That frustration, that despair, shows that God is drawing us into a kingdom not of this world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you you do not leave us to wallow in our own sin and despair. We thank you that you saw fit that even when we were dead in our trespasses, that you should make us alive by your grace through Christ. But God, we confess we regularly make friends with our sin. As Lamentations tells us, we we regularly have adulterous relationships with our sin. That is that we, we, we prefer it to you. Lord, I know for many of us, we just feel the effects of that. Things that we've hoped in that haven't panned out. Things that we've trusted in that haven't worked. I pray that even now, the sorrow that we feel, the disappointment that we feel, would be an invitation to experience hope in the life that is to come. Might the discomfort we currently feel be received as an invitation to deep comfort in you alone. God, we tried to put this off. <laughs> we try to ignore sin, and, and maybe for some of us, this is just a season where it's caught up with us. <laughs> we've, tried, we've tried to go without rest, and we're falling asleep, and, and we've tried to go without confessing sin and lamenting over sin, and this is a season that's caught up with us. Would you meet us in this season as it catches up with us with grace and with, com- with comfort? And as we deeply see the effects and the sorrow in our own lives, might you renew us and remind us of the grace that comes through the one name above every name, that is Jesus Christ, who even though he knew no sin, became sin, so we might be reunited with the Father. Thank you that this is true for us. In Jesus' name, amen.